I'm here today with Francois. Francois is the chief product officer of ClickPoints now, but is actually well known for being the founder of the organization and having scaled it with Pat Hughes and Mark Boyce. We know him very well, having started working with him and ClickPoints, what, circa over a decade ago now, when they had about six people and helping him get it to an organization of what? 220 now, Francois? About 220, yeah. I stopped counting, but I think it's about right. Superb. So first of all, thank you for coming, Francois. Thank you for having me, Julian. Then for those who don't know Clue Points, Clue Points is, I think without doubt, the world leading player in RBQM. But what most people may or may not know yet is that as an organization, it's been building a machine learning application somewhat from near enough the beginning, and therefore has a depth of understanding of machine learning applications in the pharmaceutical marketplace beyond many others. So if I can, Francois, I'll just ask you to explain what CluePoints is doing within machine learning at the moment, what sort of applications you have, and then I'll ask you for your opinion on the, the bigger AI questions. Sure. So machine learning, first of all, is like a big word, but behind the scene, when you think about what's behind machine learning, we're talking about algorithms. And, and what we've been doing for the last 20 years is we've been developing statistical algorithms and machine learning techniques have been putting statistics in different dimensions, but we're still talking about statistics. So indeed, we are indirectly in the machine learning business in, in trying to learn from the data that we're collecting for many, many decades. We're in that business forever. I would say that from a proper machine learning description, we are in that business for about five years now when we introduced our very first model to help companies. And by the way, just for people to understand what we do, we compare the data collected within a clinical trial. We are trying to identify anomalies in the way the data were collected at the sites or between patients or between different countries. And once we identify those atypical patterns, as we, as we call them, then we are asking the study team to make decisions about what do they want to do about this. An anomaly is not an issue. An anomaly is just something that is anomalous. Sometimes it's perfectly acceptable. It's perfectly okay. Sometimes it's something that requires to take action. And so the first layer of machine learning that we've been introducing to the platform was let's help people to make sure that they are making the right assessment of the anomaly and help them to make sense of either it's a problem or it's not a problem. So this has been very early years. Pretty much at the same time, we introduced a second layer of machine learning. Again, I don't want to get into complicated stuff, but behind statistics, you have p-values, you have scores, you have a lot of scores because we're looking at all the data, all the clinical and operational data. So at the end, you end up with a lot of a matrix of a large matrix of scores. And so we develop machine learning to help what we call data analysts to group those together, to tell a story. So if you have like a lot of missing data in for one patient for a group of visits, then you probably want to group all of those indications together to create one signal and to tell the study team, you have a bunch of missing data. Well, we've been training the algorithms to suggest how that grouping should be happening. So these are our initial two experiences with machine learning. And again, that was about probably five years ago. That was a long time before anybody was talking positively about machine learning in the sector. You've been actually using that technology for quite some time. Now, I believe you are now looking at applying that machine learning, and I question machine learning stroke AI, into new 
areas and you're bringing out some new solutions? True, yes. And this is where I'm trying to explain the difference between AI, machine learning, deep learning. I guess by now, knowing that this is a really hot topic, people understand that AI is like the big domain, right? So AI is, well, proper artificial intelligence. And within that, you have a subgroup, which is machine learning. And within that, you have a subgroup, which is deep learning a certain way of applying machine learning. And yes, indeed, we've been investing for about three years now in deep learning models. And we are about to, actually this week or last week, we've been releasing our very first version of medical coding. We're not the first on the market, but I, we have achieved pretty impressive results for the first iteration. So you know that every term has to be coded to according to MEDRA standards that every concomitant medications has to be coded to who drug. Until now, it was usually someone was reviewing the verbatim provided by the investigator, then it was coded to an appropriate medra, then someone else was reviewing what the first one had been doing and was confirming the mapping was correct, then the same was happening with ConMeds. We've been developing a, an algorithm, a deep learning algorithm that is supporting that process. So now the verbatim are analyzed by the machine. The verbatim, uh, the, the machine is suggesting five potential codes. The machine is right for the first code 90% of the time, one of the first five 95% of the time. So we have achieved really amazing results in a very short period of time. That means that we can now suggest to the coder pick one of the five, or you can even potentially say, let's just ask the reviewer to review one of the five terms and make decisions. So in terms of process improvements, in terms of time to, it takes to perform those coding, it's pretty amazing what we can achieve today. Also, we have to keep in mind that the traditional way of performing that coding activities was requiring the maintenance of what we call synonym lists. So there is a huge maintenance Medra versions were updated every or are updated every six months, meaning that you have to recode everything every six months. So it's a huge burden for the pharma company, and we can really limit that burden by a significant proportion of time. So that's one direct benefit of that. But we've been looking at other areas in which we can also help some clinical trial activities. And we've been focusing mainly on data management activities. But this is not just that. We can do that in many other activities. But we have also an initiative around manual EDC queries. But actually, we see that more, less and less it's about EDC. It's more and more about data that are not coming from EDC, but for which you still have to query the data. So we've been training the model to suggest the data managers these are likely to be the queries that you would like to post. And there is an element of natural language processing too. So we are also writing the query. We are suggesting it to the data manager so that they can make the decision. And we'll come back to that, I'm sure. But I'm a huge believer of human loop. So we are not at all trying to replace anyone by a machine. We are there to empower the people to make the right decision faster. And this is the analogy that you can actually see with what we've been doing for 20 years. Because yes. the idea behind having statistical methods has never been to get rid of monitors on site, which was the initial idea behind risk-based monitoring. So now we are going to cut the review 
no, it's never been that. It's been, let me tell you what is likely to be considered as an issue, and then I let you take the action. Machine learning, deep learning is no different. Gotcha. So you've seen and you've been developing machine learning, deep learning applications now for a number of years. However, AI, and particularly generative AI, has only become a hot topic in clinical, perhaps in the last 12 to 18 months. Not even. Not even. Yeah. It really, the beginning of this year, it became very hot. With that in mind, what do you really consider to be the opportunities for generative AI and wider AI in pharmatech? And what do you consider to be the hype? So I consider AI, and I know that we've been discussing that several times already, but I consider AI as being fake in our industry. And I invite people to type on Google, AI is fake, so that they understand what, it, what I mean, what it means exactly. I'm a strong believer in machine learning, deep learning, and even AI. I'm a strong believer. but we use AI as a commercial term, right? I mean, past yes. years, my, my work wife is all about AI because everyone <laughs> understands what it means, AI, and they're all excited about AI, and, and everyone wants to have some sort of AI in what they do. At the end, it's not really AI. When I think of AI, I think about movies, and I think I'm not the only one. And I no. think about those science fiction movies back from the 60s, 70s, 80s. I think about Hal in uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. I think yeah. about uh, Joshua in War Games. I think about these computers that have been empowered. We let them alone, right? I mean, Hal is the perfect example where we gave, you give a huge space shift, huge responsibility to lead the space shift to Jupiter, and then they are in charge of the entire crew life. And we do that without any hesitation. And this is it. And we are nowhere near that. And I don't think that our industry is designed, maybe by definition, for being there anytime soon. So I don't think that we're going to get rid of the human in the loop anytime soon. So generative AI is, in particular, large language modeling, which is behind yeah. GPT, is when for the first time, most people got to understand, okay, that's what we can potentially do. And, and they've seen that as being a threat. Because if you ask the question to chat GPT, it, it can be pretty scary, right? But at the end, we consider, and some people, and some people very well established in the AI area will consider that as being AI. I don't. Because at the end, you ask questions, but again, without going into the details, the way that GPT is responding is just giving you the next word based on the probability that is right, that the next word is the one that he thinks it should be. So we're talking about really the machine is putting one word after the other, and the next word is based on an algorithm that is predicting what are my chances that I'm going to put the right word. And because it's been processing billions and billions and billions of data, the chances are very tiny that it's going to be the wrong word. But can we call that intelligence? I don't think so. I attended a conference last week, Society for Clinical Data Management in San Diego, and, and this has been like really the topic of the week. And someone took a great example, because that's a use case that we think right away when we think about clinical trials in terms of gen AI protocol design. I'm going to give you my key elements of my protocol, and then I want you to design for me the entire protocol. And GPT does that very well. But one took the example of, and I apologize, I don't remember the exact example, but you will understand what I mean pretty soon, where she described, I would like to have a clinical trial, phase two trial on 200 male patients, and this is going to be about 
pregnancy test. Yeah. And right away, you're like, pregnancy test, male test, patients, that doesn't sound very right. But still, GPT created a very nice protocol. And only GPT-4 has been able to, and this is where we see that we're still progressing. GPT-4 said, are you sure that pregnancy test and male patients are compatible? Doesn't sound to me it's compatible. But we are still at the infancy, at the, at the verge of everything. So I believe a lot in machine learning and deep learning being there to understand patterns in the way that we've been doing things in the past. Hence why we need data and we need label data. We need to train the algorithms with appropriate clean data. Once you have that, then the results are pretty impressive. But we're not there in the definition of Hal or in the definition of Joshua as we think we might be anytime soon. Gotcha. And I think, isn't that one of the questions for our industry? Because in order for AI or generative AI or even deep learning to be able to really add value, we need to be able to share vast amounts of data with it because that's how it learns. And um, how is how is Pharma going to share all this confidential data with a machine learning solution? The question to the audience was, uh, how many of you are using ChatGPT? And only a few raised their hand. I mean, ChatGPT from OpenAI, and only yes. a few at two points were not allowed to. And in many companies, pharma companies, you're not allowed to. What did they do? They implemented their local version of a large language modeling similar to ChatGPT, not necessarily GPT, but they have their own version. But it means that they learn from their own data. And I was making the point to the leadership forum that we are creating some sort of unfairness between yes. those large pharma companies who are sitting on tons of data and those smaller pharma companies and biotech who do not have that volume of data that they would need. And there was a lot of questions around IP. There was a lot of questions around GDPR in Europe. Once you gave the data to a large language model, well, the data is gone. The machine learned from those data. So if some patient is asking for the data to be retrieved, that's no longer possible because the machine learned from the data. And you cannot unlearn. <laughs> so there are a lot of ethical and IP questions that needs to be addressed before we can even move further into using and implementing more, even more advanced deep learning, machine learning, and potentially in the future AI solutions. So that nicely segues us to where do you see the opportunity? So if they can get, and these are very tricky issues that we have not as a sector been able to solve to this point. You know, sharing of data on greater levels has still not really been happening. It's still in silos. For AI and machine learning, the silos will have an implication because of bias. You're going to get machines learning from different silos, then the amount of data they have in a certain silo will influence their outcomes. What do you see as the bigger, longer-term opportunity? Where do you see AI, machine learning, or deep learning having real implications in the near future? Well, it's happening now. The pace at which solutions such as ChatGPT is evolving is really impressive. In a matter of months, I mean, this is really impressive. So where do I see the future? And where do I see even what we can do now? Gen AI has great potential to help us design, for example, samples of data, samples of patients. We talk a lot about synthetic arms. We talk a lot within our own company. I, I, there was a presentation last week that I came back with, and I would be discussing with the team this week, 
where what if we're asking a machine to generate for us fake patients? Not because we want to be fraudulent, not at all, but because we want to have like a sample size so that we don't start from zero, so that we can ask the machine generate data that looks normal, that looks what it should be. And then we're going to start comparing the actual data compared to those data that has been generated by the machine so that we can see if the actual data are any different. And again, we can adjust then our sample data. We can adjust what has been generated by the machine, but we can also faster, potentially faster detecting things that were not anticipated. Yeah. So that's one use case that I think would be very interesting. Gen AI in terms of protocol design, in terms of helping into risk assessment, it's already there. It's already working. It has to be better. It has to work better. It, it has to develop some sort of critical thinking, but at the same time, and as I said, the human in the loop is very important. And the feedback provided to the machine will be very important to keep improving it. But it's there. It's happening. So I'm not suggesting that let's reconvene in five years from now and see where we are. It's going to be fast, but as anything else in our industry, and as Ken gets shared not so long ago, when you look at the number of technologies that we introduced over the last 20 years and how many of those are fully adopted, it's probably like it's a handful of those technologies. And I include in that EDC, which exists for 25 years plus. And now we are considering, yes, this is, this is adopted, but risk-based quality management, which is my business, I wouldn't dare say that this is fully implemented. And now we're suggesting that anything related to Gen AI will be adopted in the next three or five years. No, I don't see that happening. But again, being a great assistant to help people to make them more efficient. Yes, yes, definitely yes. Big picture, long-term opportunity? Anything beyond what you just said? Do I believe that machine will be replacing people, which is, has also been a very intense discussion we had last week? No, but just like many other technologies in the past, it means that we have to change. We have to adapt. We have to change the way. There are things that we used to do that we no longer do. Paper CRF, there was double data entry people. Do we still need double data entry people today? No, we don't need that. More recently, risk-based monitoring. Do we need as much CRAs as we used to? Maybe not. I think that we still use a lot of CRAs, and rightly so, but some of them became more central monitors. And we have to evolve in the skills that are required. And again, the analogy with statistical methods, with what we do for 20 years, is very striking because the conclusion that we got to last week was we need more critical thinking. We are helping people to make the basic stuff. And I was thinking about the interview this morning, and I thought that I would take the analogy that in your domain, where you're probably sitting on tons of job descriptions. When someone is asking you, I need a new chief commercial officer, you can go back to your database and you can go back to your Excel spreadsheets and you can start drilling down and gathering together all the elements that you need in terms of these are the skills, this is the experience, or you can use a large language model. You can dump all your historical data and you can ask, please draft me a job description for a chief commercial officer. And then you will refine that job description. 
Yes. So the heavy lifting of creating and gathering all the things, which takes time and is probably not the funniest part of it, can be done by the machine when it comes to discussing with the clients about what are the refinements that we need. Because I know that you're looking for someone really specific and then we're going to adjust. That is the funny part of the job that requires more critical thinking is going to be the same for us. It's going to be the same. Every time the system will be giving us something, we're going to have to develop critical thinking around it to make sure that we are what the machine suggests makes sense. Yes, I absolutely agree. And there's some big themes here. One, a bit like the decent DCT bubble, we need to be careful that it's not hype, that we look at the practical realities of where it can be applied and when. I absolutely agree it won't take humans out of the loop. I think it won't take humans out of the loop full stop. It's like each wave of new technology has just meant we go faster and better. And it's faster and better. And I absolutely agree. It'll be the critical thinking. It'll be the evaluation. It'll be in a more informed state. I would like to go back to your point about getting AI to generate patients so that you've got an initial group and then you can compare your expected normal against what's compared. That's a really interesting proposition to go, this is how we can actually start from day one comparing against the norm. That's very creative. I would like just a word of caution. This is an idea for now, and we have to yes. see if it can actually work because defining the, the norm based on data created by a machine there must be a scientific validation behind that that still has to happen. But conceptually, I think it's interesting. Yeah, that's where I was going. Conceptually, obviously, there's a lot of validation behind that and a huge amount of sensitivity about ensuring that that data doesn't become part of the full data sets. But the idea of helping from a trial point of view go faster initially to create that piece so that you can monitor from the beginning in that informed manner is really quite interesting. So Francois, as always, it's been really good to talk to you. It's really interesting to see your view. I would remind everybody that this is a gentleman that saw RBQM as an opportunity and a requirement before the rest of the world and built somewhat that market and that proposition. And in fact, even the term inside the sector. So I suggest if he's giving us a view of where machine learning will play in this space, he may have some interesting insight. Thank you again, Francois. Thank you, Julian. It was a pleasure.